There is a larger number of people who are claiming now to be atheist than ever before in recorded history. There's entire generations now that have grown up outside of church with uh, no understanding of who God is, and this is in a what we call a Christian nation. United States of America, a country that was founded upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, principles in the Word of God, know nothing of the Word of God. They know nothing of Christ. Uh, they, we've had two generations at least now that have been raised in America with no faith at all. And all across the world, there's an increasing number of people who say there is no God. I run into them quite, actually quite frequently now where I, I've met people who do not believe that there's a God in heaven. They scoff at the God of heaven. It's, a, I think, a sign of the times in which we live, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7. Last days there shall come scoffers, scoffers, scoffing at the prospect that there is a God, scoffing uh, that there is a creator, scoffing that it doesn't make sense, there's not empirical evidence, and saying in their hearts there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Many of you have come to me and give me testimony over the past few weeks about uh, people in your life, people that I have you have intersected with in, in the normal course of your day in which uh, they, they have told you or they don't believe that there's a God. In Psalm chapter 14 and verse number 1, that's where we'll begin today. Psalm chapter 14 and verse number 1, it speaks of these people who say there is no God. I think it's good to be reminded of these things from time to time, especially in this day and age in which we must earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. That we as the people of God reveal the person of God. There is a God in heaven who desires to have a personal relationship with each and every person who graces their presence on this earth. God allows to live and extends His mercy to as long as He decides that He'll extend mercy. They, uh, they have said in their heart, Psalm chapter 14 and verse number 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The 53rd Psalm, we find a repetition of of these verses, we won't go there necessarily this morning unless you're very quick to get there. But the Psalm chapter 53 and verse number 1 says the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It goes on and says, corrupt are they. Have done abominably, abominable iniquity. Uh, there is none that doeth good. And so we see it repeated in, in God's word. And I, I've learned as I went through Bible college and some other classes, I've learned that when God makes an emphasis about something, it's good for us to stop and put an emphasis on it as well. This, I had, this isn't the first time I've preached this passage of Scripture. This isn't the first time you've heard this passage of Scripture uh, preached, but, uh, but God repeats it, and so I think it would do us well to maybe repeat uh, something of it again, to bring attention to it again, especially in this age that we live in. We're we're in the vestibule. We're crossing the bridge out of the church age and into the age of apostasy. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, as your only hope of a relationship with God and home in His presence for eternity, when we near the end of the bridge, the Lord is going to sound the trumpet. And those which are dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are remained uh, in our lives uh, will be caught up with them uh, to be with the Lord in the air. And then the age of apostasy will come in. And this is it. This is it. We're on the bridge. We're in the vestibule. We can't, we can't uh, see it all clearly yet, but we can see it's coming. Can't we? Can't you see it? 
Can't you see that, that we've left, we're leaving the church age? I mean, it wasn't me that coined this idea that we, we live in a post-Christian era. I wasn't the one that published that. That's what, that's what Newsweek is publishing, that we live in a post-Christian era. Even the world knows it. Leaving this time, the church age, we have just the space of time left to make the truth known. There's a God in heaven. So God puts an emphasis there. When he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, why does the word of God call the person who says there is no God a fool? I mean, that's awfully strong language, isn't it? That's not very nice. But it's true. The word of God says it. Why does the word of God say it? And we're going to look at that this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd stir in our hearts the truth. Lord, help us to face the truth. Help us to carry the truth to those who are wanting, those who stand in need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does the Word of God call the person who says there is no God a fool? Well, number one, God's Word calls the person who says there is no God a fool because they are shallow in their thinking. They're shallow in their thinking. They claim to be deep thinkers and open-minded, but in reality they are very closed-minded and shallow when they say there is no God. You might be familiar with the English philosopher Francis Bacon. He wrote an essay on atheism, and in that essay on atheism he said, A little, a little, note that, a little philosophy tendeth to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. Let me say that again. A little philosophy tendeth to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. Now, we understand that religion is not the way to God. God is the way to God. God came to this earth to restore a broken relationship, not to establish a religion. Amen? Would you agree with that? It's not about religion. But the point is, is that shallow thinking leads to Atheism and critical thinking leads to Christ. And honestly, let me just throw this in as a note. I, I, I don't think that most people who say there is no God, I don't think they really believe that. I don't think they really believe that. They base that, that, that belief on, on two things. Either somebody told them uh, or because of their personal experience. And we both know, we all know, that those are not reliable uh, to provide us with absolute truth, the words of man and personal experience, right? But I don't think that most people who even call themselves atheists are really atheists. I, I think that if they would think even just a little more deeply, they would find that there is a God. They may not know who that God is, but that, that's not an atheist. That's what I would call an agnostic. If you're hearing the preaching this morning and you consider yourself an atheist, I might submit that to you, that if you gave it even just a little bit of thought, you might find that you're not an atheist, and you're actually moving the right direction if you go from atheism to agnosticism. If you could just get to that point, if you think just a little bit more deeply that there is a God in heaven, there is something that is greater than what we can see and what we can taste and touch and hear and smell and all those wonderful senses. Speaking of the wonderful senses, how do you think we got them except there was a, something greater. 
Just a little bit of thought. You see how it tends toward Christ? Just that. In that, in that instance, tends toward Christ. Shallow thinking leads to atheism. Critical thinking leads to Christ. I want to mention a word here, humanism. Humanism. Humanism is really a word that is used in place of atheism. Humanism is a more inert academic word that neutralizes the stigma of the word atheism. Humanism is introduced to people at a very early age. It is not a new thing. It's a it's an old tool in the devil's tool bag. Matter of fact, if you were to go back to the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we learn that, that humanism was being introduced to the certain children of the, of the kingdom of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was, the Bible says, no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. What was that? But humanism. Man's way to God, right? Man's way to uh, explain away God, to figure God out. So we see that uh, humanism is not a new thing. Humanism has been around for a long time. We uh, see it illustrated in the lives of Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Jewish names. Their Babylonian names were... Uh, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they they uh, brought these young people in and they wanted to get a hold of them at an early age so that they could indoctrinate them into the ways and the learning, the tongue of the Chaldeans. So they did it. Think about it. They they did uh, three different, basically three different things. They, uh, they went after their diet. They went after their education. And they went after their identity. They changed their names wanted to confuse their identity. See, they had identified by their Hebrew names, they identified them with the God of heaven, Jehovah. By their Babylonian names, it identified them with the gods of Babylon. Went after everything, didn't they? Well, we see that happening today, don't we? That attack on our youth today. The attack on the diet. The attack on the education. The attack on identity. I mean, do you think that's an accident? And it can be summed up summarily, I guess, in the fashion of its humanism. In our current culture, we are almost constantly subject to the idea of humanism. Matter of fact, I talked about it in our Sunday school class, how we have to be careful that we don't take and, and mix in humanism with what the Word of God says about bringing up our children in the way they should go. And we do it all the time. And, and it's, it's, it's probably... Uh, just by mistake, it's, it's because we don't think about it. We, we hear about humanism. We, we see humanism. We read about humanism at, at every turn. And sadly, I, I'm afraid that, that we may, in our current culture, may be subconsciously getting used to the idea of humanism. And it sounds good, right? But it's not. It's not. Oh, I could go on and on about this. Humanism. Humanism permeates our public schools. It permeates our colleges and our universities. And it's disturbing to hear what some young adults think after they've been exposed to socialist, socialist, liberal, governmental indoctrinators. It's terrifying. That is why we must discuss and speak of the reality of God and mankind's need to know Him. 
on Saturdays, we've been able to get out into our community and reach into over a thousand homes for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just in our immediate area. I thank the Lord for that. One of the things that I've done differently, I, I always try to observe how I present the church to others, how I present God to others. And I used to say something along the lines of, you know, uh, my name is Pastor Greg Wilt. I'm the pastor of, I no, start off, I say my name's Greg Wilt. I'm the pastor of Liberty Lake Baptist Church. Just wanted to drop by and meet you today and give you an invitation to church. I used to say that. This year I've, I've done something differently because I, I've sensed the necessity that we need to introduce God to people. And so what I do, I, I carry the same literature. We've got different varieties, but I knock on the door. I say, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt your day. I'm Greg Wilt. I'm the, I am the pastor of Liberty Lake Baptist Church. I just wanted to drop by and give you this today because in this little pamphlet are verses from God's Word that tell you who Christ is. And I want to introduce, I, I, I don't want to introduce the church so much as I want to introduce Christ to people. I've changed that because I sense that necessity. And, and today more than ever, we need to do that. We need to speak about the reality of God and, and mankind's need to know God. I mentioned that quote from Francis Bacon a, a moment ago. He was, what he was communicating in his essay on atheism, is that a little humanistic philosophy leads a person to begin to doubt the great fundamentals of God, the great truths of God. However, depth in true philosophical thought leads a person to devotion, reverence, and faith in God. The Word of God teaches us that a little knowledge becomes a dangerous thing because a little knowledge puffeth up. You give somebody a little bit of knowledge, and it swells up into this great thing. It looks like it's really the real deal and really like something that it's not. It's just really swollen and puffed up. And so God, God's word calls to the fool that has said in his heart that there is no God. How long will ye love simplicity and the scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge? You see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the Word of God calls the person who says there is no God a fool because they're shallow in their thinking. If you're hearing this message today, by the way, you might be here today and so say, I know there's a God. I've even trusted Christ as my Savior. This message that I'm preaching to you, I hope will be repeated to somebody else that you know that may say in their heart there is no God might help you to help them. That's the benefit of the evangelistic message to the saved person is that they learn different ways to approach a lost and dying world. You know, we might linger, but condemnation doesn't linger. You understand? We need to be faithful in getting this message out to those that say there is no God. They say there is no God because they're shallow in their thinking. Number two, God's word calls the person who says there is no God a fool because they allocate to themselves omniscience and infallibility. Let me say that again because some of you look like you're taking notes. God's word calls the person who says there is no God a fool because they allocate to themselves omniscience and infallibility. Think about this. 
In order for a person to say that there is no God, that person must know all things and be in all places at all times to be able to say there is no God. There's a theologian and author, his name is Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote this, and I can't say it any better than he said it, so I'm just going to read what he wrote. He said, The wonder turns on the great process by which a man could grow to the immense intelligence that can know there is no God. This intelligence involves the very attributes of deity. For unless this man is omnipresent in some place where he is not, there may be a God. If he does not know absolutely every agent in the universe, the one that he does not know may be God. If he is not himself the chief agent in the universe, and does not know what is so, that which is so just may be God. If he is not in absolute possession of all the propositions that constitute universal truth, the one which he lacks may be that there is a God. If he cannot with certainty assign the cause of all that he perceives to exist, that cause may be God. If he does not know everything that has been in the immeasurable ages past, some things that may have been done may have been done by God. Thus, unless he knows all things, that is, precludes another deity by being one himself, he cannot know that being, that being whose existence he rejects does not exist. I just couldn't say it any better than that. The person that says there is no God allocates to themselves omniscience and infallibility. And in order to be able to say that, if you say that in your heart, that there is no God, in order to be able for you to say that, you must be able to know all things and be in all places at all times to be able to say that. You ascribe to yourself deity. And therefore you cannot even say that there is no God because you exist. You've made yourself God. And that's why the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Number three. God's word calls the person who says there is no God a fool. I think this is the primary point. As we're going to see here in just a minute. God's word calls the person who says there is no God a fool because they have a corrupt spiritual nature. Do you know the word of God tells us that we have a law written in our hearts? Do you know what says that? Did you know universally, when I say universally, do you understand what I'm saying? Everywhere in the world. There are different people groups all over this world. And everywhere, universally, there is a law that is written in the hearts of mankind. Any culture that you engage. Well, let me say it like this. Have you ever heard of somebody who went into the deepest, darkest jungle you can, that, that is known to man and met up with a people group that were atheists, that did not serve a God, that had no moral law whatsoever. And I'm telling you, that has never happened. There has never been an explorer who has explored and found a culture that did not have a God, that, that were atheists, by definition, every culture universally has, a, has something in them 
that speaks to the existence of some kind of creator. And I'm not saying that that creator is the same creator that we serve, but I'm saying it's in our nature. There's a law written in our hearts and almost universally, universally, not almost universally, there are certain things that, that are just observed by mankind that, that just from the heart they know are wrong. Murder in every culture is wrong. Rape in every culture is viewed as morally wrong. Theft in every culture is is morally wrong. There's a law written in the hearts of man, a little light that God instills in the heart of a being at conception, a human being at conception, that when they're born into this world, they know, become hardened against. You become hardened against it because they have a corrupt spiritual nature. The corrupt spiritual nature is really, I it's, it's at least in the context of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me in Psalm chapter 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This same thing is repeated in the context of Psalm chapter 53. The corrupt spiritual nature is the reason why the existence of God is, is never argued in the Word of God. Did you hear that? Because God knows that we have a corrupt spiritual nature, that's why the existence of God is never argued in the Word of God, ever. How does the Word of God begin? In the beginning, that's called presumptive reasoning. It presumes there is a God. And that's not wrong. The Word of God never argues the existence of God. It begins, there is a God. I'm sorry, it doesn't begin, there is a God. It begins in the beginning, God. It makes the affirmation, doesn't make the argument. Right? Today, many seek so desperately to make God relevant by using common language and the concepts that people, you know, concepts that people try to understand that they begin to no longer perceive the necessity of God or His Word in their lives. We need to go back to the Word of God. God's Word is capable of, uh, capable of doing what it says that it can do. And, 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 and we just need to put our faith in the power of God's Word to be able to do it. Just as fire burns and just as the smallest hammer can crack the largest rock when its force is applied consistently and, and precisely so the Word of God will prosper where it is applied. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, It's not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. To the Christian, I want to encourage you as you engage those that maybe perhaps say there is no God. Those that the Bible is describing here in Psalm chapter 14 and Psalm chapter 53. When you engage them, use biblical language. 
define that language with the word, word of God. I, I like what Spur, uh, Charles Spurgeon had to say about it. He said the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. So God, uh, in his word, doesn't argue the existence of God. It doesn't begin there is a God. It begins in the beginning God, presumptively, taking care of that issue. So we need to be careful that we recognize the power of God's word and, and use it. And in addition to God's word, God witnesses of himself in an unwritten way. A world of creation so that every person in every age is without excuse. I don't remember who it was. I read this somewhere. But somebody has said the mountain ranges are nothing but raised letters by which we blind children can place our fingers and spell out the name of God. God is revealed in the world that he spoke into existence. God's word and the world he created work in perfect harmony. They are authored by the same omnipotent power, and by them he affirms his existence. I'd like to take you to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment and read some verses there in the book of Romans in chapter number 1. That help us to see this, Romans chapter number 1. Starting in verse number 18. God is revealed in the world that he spoke into existence. God's word, the world he created, work in perfect harmony. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. It's made known in them. God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power, Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So the Word of God calls them fools because of that corrupt nature. You know, here's what I find to be interesting about the idea. One of the things I find to be interesting about the idea that there is no God and it is the burden of proof. The one that says there is no God always places the burden of proof on the one that says there is a God. When in reality, the burden of proof is upon the fool that says there's not a God. Somebody comes to you and say, prove the existence of God. It's very appropriate to turn it on them and say, you prove that there's not a God. That, that can be settled quite easily. I don't think we have to be snarky about it. I think we have to try to reason with people, warn them of, of righteousness and sin and judgment to come. But you know, some of the most successful arguments I've had with people, not arguments, but I guess that's what they are, talks with people about the existence of God, I kind of let them talk. 
where did, where did that tree come from? And they go back to the humanistic philosophy that they were indoctrinated in. They begin to spew that filth out. And so then you can ask, well, where did, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I've had a conversation with a man. We got all the way back to Stardust before he slammed the door. Where did that come? Where did the stardust come from? See, the burden of proof is on those that say there is no God. Why do we believe? Why do you believe what you believe? You can believe what you believe. We talked about two of them earlier. You believe what you believe because somebody else told you. Because you heard it from somebody else. You can believe what you believe because of your personal experience. I learned of a, I knew about this man before, but his name was mentioned again to me this week who lost a very beautiful wife. Now doubts the existence of God. There's a God, why would he let that happen? So he's basing his belief on his personal experience. And you can do that. You're perfectly at liberty to do that. You can choose to believe what you believe because somebody else told you, because you read it in a book, because you listened to it on a talk radio program, because you saw it on television, whatever. You can believe what you believe because somebody else said it. By the way, most of what we believe, we believe because somebody else told us. We didn't do the research. We didn't, have, we didn't have the experiment in front of us. And so we believe what we believe because what somebody else has told us. That's not always wrong. There's not a, there's, that's not always a bad thing. But it's not reliable for absolute truth. You can believe what you believe because of personal experience, like this man that I was, I was mentioning just a moment ago, because he lost something very near and dear to himself, and he, he cannot reconcile in his mind the sovereignty of the God of heaven, and he, he just can't do it because of his corrupt spiritual nature, essentially, is what it boils down to. So based on his personal experience, he has determined there is no God, negating everything else negating the Word of God, negating the truth that is, was in him, that law that's in his heart, negating the, the, the creation that he loves so much, I know he loves, and bases his absolute truth on personal experience that quite frankly changes from one moment to the next and varies from person to person. It cannot be relied upon. Personal experience cannot be relied upon for absolute truth. I've got good news for you today because that leaves us in a very precarious position when we decide, when we figure out, I can't base absolute truth on what other people say or personal experience. What am I going to do? And the good news is, is that God's word is a fixed point of reference. It does not change. And based on the word of God, the Bible tells us by faith, you say, well, so that's, that's, that's crazy. Faith is crazy. Wait a minute. If you believe what somebody else told you, you have faith. If you believe because of personal experience, 
You have faith. Did you know that? You're believing. By faith, that experience, that, that word, that person told you. There's nothing different for the believer in Christ. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So by faith, we believe in the beginning God. And we base that faith on a fixed point of reference, something that will not change and cannot change. The eternal word of God. By faith, we accept everything in this book as it is the word of God. Even if we can't understand it, if you did not hear the message on Wednesday night, Romans chapter 9, on the sovereignty of God, I suggest you listen to it. It's powerful. And I'm telling you, it's hard to wrap your mind around the sovereignty of God because our minds are limited by the very things that God is not limited by. Oh, it's so hard for us to understand. And you say, well, how can you believe that by faith? Because God's word says it. I mean, you read it. There it is. You have to acknowledge it. You have to look at it and realize that's what it says. God said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And my friend, oh, how that makes the cross so much more precious than it did to me before. And oh, how that makes my sin seem so much more evil than it did before. Oh, I woke on Thursday morning contemplating the sovereignty of God and realizing His His presence and existence in my life. Oh, how it changed me even through the night on Wednesday night as I went to sleep thinking about the God of heaven who lives outside of time, space, and matter, who governs in all the affairs of all mankind over all time. And to realize whether he shows me mercy or not doesn't matter. He still gets glory. Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? I was captivated by the thoughts that the Lord gave to me, I believe, on Wednesday night. It made my sin seem more sinful on Thursday morning. Cause me to live more soberly, more righteously, more godly. I hope. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it made their cross so much more precious to me. Realizing what I was saved from. Who I was in my corrupt spiritual nature. You know, Clay is talking about that in Romans chapter 9. Shall the things that was formed say to the thing that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Romans 9, verses 20 and 21. You know, clay is, a, is not a passive medium. Clay does not receive the potter's touch. It responds to the potter's touch. You know, there's imperfections in clay. Sometimes it's too dry. Sometimes it has lumps in it. 
Sometimes that potter will have to take his hand and dip it into water and try to get that clay to respond how he wants it to respond. And here's, here's the glory of all glories that he knows before he touches the clay how the clay is going to respond to him. Yet he leaves that clay on the wheel and he gives it another spin. And he has mercy upon those that he will have mercy Until he decides, back to the pit. That's an amazing thought. I thought about that too. And I remember what James wrote about God not being a respecter of persons. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? God. God knows the imperfections in the clay. He knows how the clay is going to respond to his touch, and yet he puts it on the wheel and gives it a spin. Because he's not a respecter of persons. It's an amazing thought. Fool. It said in his heart there is no God. Because he's shallow in his thinking. When he does that, he allocates to himself deity, omniscience, infallibility, omnipresence. But the primary reason why a fool says in his heart there is no God is because he has a corrupt spiritual nature. And he believes what he believes either based on his own personal experience or because Carl Sagan said so. Or Hawking, Stephen Hawking said so. But the Word of God says there is a God. It doesn't even argue it. It affirms it. The very first sentence in the beginning, God. You know who God is? God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And in that man's body, he lived a sinless life, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Resurrected bodily from the dead. Resurrected bodily from the dead. I was reading in Job this week. You know Job even said that, mentioned that? That our flesh will be resurrected. Those that place their faith and trust in, in God alone, Christ alone, have a relationship with God. We're going to be resurrected bodily. You say, how? How? I don't know. Neither did Job. Because he was resurrected bodily. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And right this very moment, there's a God in heaven who's thinking about you. There's a Savior interceding on your behalf. And, and 
asking God by the work of the Holy Spirit, and boy, how does this all work? This is a whole nother message, but opens the understanding of the person to come to faith in Christ. I mean, there are three that bear witness in the earth. The Spirit, water, right? The blood. It talks about the Spirit of God and the Word of God meeting together in perfect harmony and talks about the mercy of God and the truth of God meeting in the person of Christ and righteousness and peace kissing each other. And That's God. That's the God of heaven. Do you know Him? There's only one way that you can. The Lord Jesus Christ. So as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, there's something inside of us, I think, that speaks with authority. A moral consciousness that does not speak in abstract terms, but in specifics. It, it doesn't talk in the subjunctive sense, let us. It talks in the imperative, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And I want to ask you, what is it saying to you right now? What is God saying to you right now? If you're listening to this by a way of Facebook or dial-up or maybe in the future sometime when somebody might happen across our website and, and, and be scrolling through and see uh, this message, why does the Word of God uh, call the person who says there is no God, uh, call him a fool? might pique your interest. You might have listened to this entire message and now it comes down to this moment in time. Whether that's now or in the future sometime, we don't know. But what is God saying to you right now? Are you one that the Bible describes as a fool who has said in your heart there is no God? What's that voice saying to you right now? That, that authority, that authoritative voice inside you right now. Is it saying trust in Christ? Is, is it saying believe if it is, I want you to respond to that. Trust in Christ is your only hope of relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity. Maybe you're here today, a very good chance. I would say that most of the people, if not all the people in the auditorium today, I've received a good testimony of salvation. You might say, I, I believe there's a God. I've even placed my faith and trust in Christ. Do you know how this lands on our shoulders as believers sometimes? Sometimes we act as if God doesn't exist. We're kind of like selective atheists. And we believe that there's times when God can't see what we do. God can't hear what we're listening to. God doesn't know what I'm thinking. And the, the truth is, yes, He does. Because He's God. So maybe that voice is saying to you right now, in an imperative sense, stop treating God as if He doesn't exist. The Lord may have spoken to your heart. Would you... Respond to that. I'm inviting you to do so. Just give you a few minutes to do that.